Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Deeper Life. I hope that you are finding some joy in this week. I know that there's just so much going on in the world, and it can be very overwhelming, all-consuming. Um, you know, we I feel like it can be hard to, in some ways, catch a break to check in with ourselves, check in with our humanity, our feelings, and what our body is telling us, if we're exhausted, if we need rest, um, you know, with the news and just access to our phones and, and work and just stress in general, all of it compiling on top of each other can just feel really overwhelming. So I hope that this episode brings you some peace because it's all about kindness and how to access more kindness. And before we dive into that, I just kind of coming off of what I was saying about being overwhelmed, I actually just want to take a couple of moments of silence as we dig into this episode to give you a chance to just breathe and check in with yourself. And so I'm just going to encourage you to take just 15 seconds of pure silence and just be with yourself. Awesome, friends. Thank you so much for doing that with me. I know that I find myself craving those moments of silence and peace throughout my day when things feel very overwhelming or I feel anxious. And um, I just want to encourage us to always know that we can access that at any time. We can access that that calmness, that stillness, any time that we desire, even whenever there are so many things going on around us. So I want to dig into this episode because as I was recording it, I was taking notes and just feeling so enlightened and excited about just the way that we can grow as human beings. And so today's episode features an amazing gentleman named Houston Craft. And what a what a name, right? I can't wait for you to hear um, everything that this episode carries with it to give you a little bit of insight into Houston. To, into who Houston, <laughs> into who Houston is. Um, Houston is a speaker, author, and kindness advocate who has spoken at over 600 schools and events internationally. In 2016, he co-founded Character Strong, which is a curriculum and training program that helps teach social and emotional skills in high schools. To date, Character Strong has worked with over 2,500 schools globally, serving over 2 million students, which is just incredible. In 2019, his face was featured on a Lay's barbecue chip bag, who doesn't love some chips, as someone who helps spread smiles. In 2020, his very first book, Deep Kindness, was released just honestly a few weeks ago. You can find it on Amazon. We'll make sure to link it up in the bio. And he is just amazing. We, we dig into a lot of really awesome topics on today's episode, including what gets in the way of kindness, the gap between our belief in kindness and our ability to actually practice it. We talk about the empathy gap, emotional regulation. We talk about a lot of different topics, but I know that this is an episode that will resonate with 
just so many of the Deeper Life community members, um, pass it on to someone who you know is struggling to experience kindness from others or experiencing to extend kindness. I know that I was very convicted in this episode um, on a couple of different topics of ways that I wanted to grow. And so the learning doesn't have to stop with this episode. I definitely encourage you to send it to your partner, to your friends, to your family, and, and have a conversation around this episode because it, kindness is something that we can all access, that we can all experience and extend but it is something that we have to put into practice consistently. It's not just something that comes up every now and then. And we definitely dig into um, how to practice kindness in a more day to day. And even, you know, kindness is, can be a mindset too. So we're going to dig into all of that. If you are vibing with this episode, I would love for you to screenshot your podcast player, jump over to Instagram and tag me at Alexis Tykemiller, and then also tag Houston at Houston Craft. Craft is with a, a K and we'll put his info in the, the uh, show notes as well, but jump over and connect with us and let us know that you're listening to this episode because I know that we both love connecting with people. I love connecting with y'all. You know, sometimes when you're podcasting, you're not like, who's on the other side? Who's listening? So please reach out. Please let me know what you're learning from this episode, um, what stood out to you, things you agreed with, things that you didn't agree with, all of it. I have all of that in my DMs and more, and I really enjoy having those honest conversations with y'all. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast, truly that would mean so much to me. Um, Rating and reviewing the podcast helps with the searchability. And also, I love reading them. It helps me keep going. You know, it gives me the fuel I need to keep producing this podcast. So I just want to say thank you in advance for being here. Let's dive in to another episode of Deeper Life with Houston Craft, all about deep kindness. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of The Deeper Life. I'm your host, Alexis Tykemiller. And today on the podcast, I have my new friend, Houston Craft, which just the name Houston Craft, like, holds a level of power to it. And so <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about such a powerful topic like kindness. And I'm just so happy that you're on the show today, Houston. Thank you. I'm going to have to tell my mom. She gave me a, a name that holds power. I Actually, will. fun fact, Kraft in German means power, but Houston in German roughly translates to cough. So I'm the powerful cough. <laughs> Which is also kind of scary in COVID times, you know? <laughs> I know. I don't tell that to many people. Yeah. Well, I feel very, I feel very thankful that you shared this insight with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, so many things to dig into and you just launched a book, but like we're going to dig into all things, you know, character strong and, and just your advocacy for kindness. I want to like step way back though. And I want to understand and get to know Houston as a child and like where, where did your relationship with kindness start? Where did you learn it? Where did you um, see it exemplified? Where was it a struggle for you? I'm just curious where this this curiosity and this advocacy for kindness began. And I feel like most things in our lives usually start in our childhood. So let's just go back in time. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could pinpoint. If I could pinpoint the moment we could transform all of us into more kind people, 
yeah. we'd be in business. We that'd be a good thing. Uh, it's I I credit such a large percentage to parents, mm-hmm. um, and we know that that families shape so much of who we are. And my mom is like the role model of a compassionate life. Uh, my dad, I don't think ever hangs up the phone without saying I'm proud of you, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, in a weird semi-non-related story, but I was like four years old and I grew up with my, my grandma owned an art gallery um, for 40 years where she had over a hundred artists. So I kind of grew up in art. Maybe that's a piece of the puzzle too. just like seeing so many colors and illustrations just like amplifies in imagination. Mm-hmm. I think so much of empathy is an intentional imagination, you know, that exercise of perspective taking, mm-hmm. which is what art does well. But I remember, um, or my mom shared the story of this woman who was in my grandma's gallery one day, and I was four, just like playing on the stairs. And the woman said two things to my mom. She sort of like self-proclaimed herself a a bit of a a psychic, an energy reader or something. And she said that, uh, first of all, that I chose my mom, that my mom didn't choose me. Like I got to choose my mom. I was like, all right, good choice. I made a good choice. Yes. And number two, she said, I see this kid speaking in front of large groups of people. Mm. So my mom likes to hold that as like, she's like, and I think he'll talk about something about love. Um, mm. So it's bizarre. Maybe it's just even those like weird mini moments of manifestation where because this seed was planted, right. my mom was like, maybe we got to orient this kid towards this thing. <laughs> um, and amazing. then I, you know, I, I grew up an only child, which yeah. um, for better or for worse, Hopefully I'm on the for better side. I'm not sure. My mom, um, when I when I think about practical kindness, I, I, I always think about the example of my mom wrote me a lunch note every day, like in my little brown paper bag. She would pack my lunch and she wrote me a note every day, kindergarten through 12th grade. Wow. And sometimes it was like just a word of the day. Sometimes it was, you know, a, a quote or a saying. Sometimes it was just like a reminder that I was loved. Yeah. But I think about like that two minutes a day that it took her to write that thing mm. and how like in aggregate, right? When you add up that time, it's like the most profound really action of love cumulatively I've right. experienced in my life. So I, I feel like a piece of the puzzle is just watching compassion consistency, mm-hmm. which is rare. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are, I think people oftentimes confuse being, being a kind person with doing kind things. And when we do things occasionally, that means we've just done something kind. But I don't know if it makes us a kind person. And we, I think we do that a lot with like values in our life. Like values versus skills are a weird thing. Like, you know, you, you would never fix one bicycle and say, I am an engineer. <laughs> but sometimes we'll do like one action of kindness a year and be like, I'm a kind person. Right. <laughs> I think much like any sort of expertise, we have to earn our way through practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say, I think I just got to witness a lot of that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the biggest role model, the biggest sort of teacher in your life are the things that people show you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had just cool f- friends and teachers. I had an older brother figure in my life named Michael, who was cool for all the right reasons. He just like, was the best dude, knew everyone's name, cared for everyone. If I were to ever like speak poorly of someone or even swear, he would like hold me down and tickle me. So I had accountability in my life, which was a wow. big deal. That's amazing. And, uh, and then teachers, you know, I, I work in education and educators are, are such 
creators of a future. And uh, mm-hmm. I had a number of people along the way who saw goodness in me, saw potential in me and, and supported me or like came alongside me and said, hey, you should do this or I'll be here if you try this. Um, and I get to work with one of those teachers now, actually, the guy I co-founded Character Strong with is a hero and a role model and a mentor to me. He's 10 years older. He was a teacher, not at my high school, but um, I saw him speak at a leadership camp I attended. And I looked up to him from like the moment I met him. And then fast forward, whatever it was, 10 years after I met him, we we created this company together. So uh, mainly luck and circumstance Mm -hmm. and, and bearing witness to what kindness looks like in action has helped create a lot of that in me. Mm-hmm. And then the more I've learned about the practical nature of it, I think I just have a curiosity to to solve the problem of how do we create a more kind world when everyone says it's important, and yet as we look around, we're not so good at it. So mm-hmm. why? Why is that gap there? Right. Um, and I'm obsessed with filling that gap. Yeah. And you're already doing such an amazing job and making huge impacts in that. You said the word curious. And I just love that word. And it's something that in my work with vulnerability, you know, a lot of times when with vulnerability and even kindness, like there's this judgment that can come up sometimes when we're too vulnerable or if we're kind, some somebody might see that as weakness. And so instead of being, instead of when a thought pops up into my mind of like, if I'm vulnerable, if someone's going to judge me or if I'm going to judge myself, instead, I just get really curious and I'm like, hmm, I wonder why that popped up there. Or I'm feeling jealous right now. I wonder where that's coming from. Or I'm feeling like misunderstood. Why do I feel that? And like just being really, really curious instead of always trying to judge it or have an answer for it. And I love that you've just held this space for curiosity. I think that's so beautiful. And when did that spark in you? When did that curiosity When did you start seeing the gap of like, everyone says kindness is important, but why don't we actually act on it or how do we act on it? Yeah, I I imagine in in your work, you've had a chance to be exposed, whether it's a reading or a presentation or a podcast. You know, I think we've all, people, people who live in like the personal development world at some point, I think we're exposed to some paradigm shifting thing in their life. Mm-hmm. that part of the reason I want to do this work is like, I feel like everyone would benefit from understanding this distinction or being mm-hmm. able to see this perspective. You know, even that offer of like, what if I were to look at jealousy through the lens of curiosity? Mm-hmm. That's just like a practical tool that, you know, if everyone in the world had access to that tool, immediately you make a small measurable difference. Right. So for me, I I was introduced to this like sort of concept of of unconditional kindness at this like leadership camp when I was going into my senior year of high school and it was so transformative to me the way that we talked about it the way we experienced it at this camp I was like I want more people to know this and so I started speaking you know I started working in schools um and I think I, I I spent probably five or six years trying to sell people on the idea of kindness through stories and examples and humor and presentations. And like my background was in theater and I was like, all right, I can go on and I'll I'll do storytelling and I'll move an audience towards like this understanding. And my, I think my unintentional hypothesis was 
the more sort of passionately I spoke about kindness, the more I could e express to people its inherent worth, its value, the more right. likely people would practice it. Um, and then I think I, I continually felt frustrated that like that didn't necessarily feel true. Right. And one of the words I, I stumbled upon in, in writing um, a recent book that just came out called Deep Kindness, one of the words I, I discovered was akrasia. Akrasia is a Greek word that means our weakness of will. Which are like mm. There are things in our life we know are important and we don't have the willpower to practice them or we don't align our, our actions to the things that we intend. Wow. I'm like, yeah, that resonates when it comes to kindness. Mm -hmm. About four years ago, I was speaking at a, a conference in Washington and uh, I was to follow a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor. She was supposed to speak for 30 minutes. She went for 90, but you don't tell that woman to stop talking. Right. <laughs> and she sat in a chair with a little glass of water in front of her. And she told this just absolutely unbelievable story uh, of her narrative surviving. She went to Auschwitz. Her whole family was killed during a death march. She escaped uh, once she ended up escaping again, um, eventually in a giant ball of yarn. You like, can't make these things up. Wow. And in part of her story, she was talking about how um, the Nazis would place the Jews in a room and place a glass of water in the center. And their goal was because they would dehydrate them and starve them for many days. The goal was to prove that they were nothing more than animals because they would place this resource in the center and they, the expectation would be like the people would clamor over each other to get to it. And she told stories of how, how often no one would move. And finally she tells the story of her escape. She talks about um, how she became a teacher and moved to the United States. And in spite of the Nazis attempts to uh, sterilize um, people from you know being unable to have children. She went on to have kids and grandkids, and in a um, crazy moment, she said, "Take that, Hitler!" And she like has like she actually could say that. She's like, "I did it in spite of Hitler." You're like, this woman crushes. And at wow. the end, in this really profound visual that I'll never forget, after 90 minutes of this place being totally silent, 5,000 kids, she picks up the glass of water, and she holds it up in the air and she says freedom she takes a sip mm. because this was a thing you know they were robbed of this basic human choice mm -hmm. and i was sitting waiting in the wings like getting ready to go talk about kindness and i was like i have missed the mark for a long time mm. in the sense that i don't know if the right premise is to just show the audience that kindness is good, which I think is what I was trying to do. Like the more I showed it was good, the more likely they would practice it. Right. And I realized maybe the better question in reflecting on, her name was Noemi Bon. Um, in reflecting on Noemi's story, I was like, maybe the more interesting question is what prevents us? What gets in the way of kindness? Because we are capable of something as tragic as the Holocaust. And my guess is nine out of the 10 people you asked who were Nazis, if they believed in kindness, would say, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I believe in kindness. So probably it's 2016 to give you a really long answer to a short question. 
uh, would be 2016 is like when I got curious about that gap where I'm like, okay, there's a different way to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it starts with self-exploration and, and perhaps in what I could offer others would be a framework to unpack the answer for ourselves. What prevents me from my most kind life? That's such a powerful story. And it's in those moments like that where you're waiting in the wings, you know, um, where we get to see ourselves from a different perspective. But it, mm. you, you might not have never arrived there. Maybe you would have, but it would have taken longer if you hadn't have sat there and had watched that from your perspective of, of being next, you know, not someone even in the audience, but like someone being next where it's like your turn to talk. And it's like, wow, what is this? What does this really mean? Where, where is this going? And that's just such a beautiful story. I'm curious now, curious, what gets in the way of us being Mm -hmm. kind? This is such a natural next question. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, for me, uh, in my own self-reflection, the three big categories that came up, and maybe a bonus one, um, was incompetence, Mm. insecurity, and inconvenience. Incompetence meaning, what are the skills that I'm missing that live beneath the action of kindness? I think we forget that kindness is is a behavior that's informed by a lot of other skills, right? Things need to be in alignment beneath the action itself in order for that action to exist well. Mm. Um, When we think about it from a curricular standpoint, when we build tools for for school, we talk about internal versus external. What are the things I need internally to be able to behave externally in, in a given way? Let's say kindness is the end result. Well, in order to practice kindness with some people, I need the skill of emotional regulation. And I think we take for granted sometimes that that is a skill that we can develop. Emotional management, emotional understanding. We all presently feel a lot of big feelings. And in the face of anger, in the face of frustration, in the face of of resentment, in the face of jealousy, in the face of overwhelm, in the face of stress or anxiety, can I still show up in kindness? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, but it gets a lot harder if I haven't been taught any ways to manage those emotions. If I don't know what I'm feeling, <laughs> let yeah. alone how to regulate those feelings. Yes. And regulate doesn't mean disinvalidate, right? Regulate doesn't mean you're not allowed to feel this thing. It just means, okay, I'm feeling anger. Instead of acting out of the emotion, how do I act out of alignment? How do mm-hmm. I act out of, out of what I, who I want to be? Mm-hmm. When it comes to the behavior of kindness externally, an internal skill is is empathy, right? Do I know how to take on someone's perspective? Do I know how to listen effectively to people's needs and what they need? What about forgiveness? It's so often this like internal process mm-hmm. of releasing someone from a pain you've projected on them mm-hmm. to separate the person from the behavior and say, you're not a bad person, but you did a bad thing. Right. And if I can distinguish those two in my brain, I can offer someone kindness, even in the face of them hurting me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean what they did to me is right. And it doesn't mean I'm, I'm allowing them to do that again. But sometimes one of the most kind things we can do is forgive those who have hurt us the most. And typically that kindness is, is most directed ourselves. Right. 
So that first one is incompetence, right? What are the tools that I need in my toolbox to effectively give this outward facing behavior? Right. Really quick, before we move on to the next two, I want to talk about the, the empathy gap and then you mentioned emotional regulation. If you were in a place in your adulthood where you're navigating this topic and you're trying to grow and you're, you're trying to connect with yourself deeper, recognizing that there are areas in life that feel really disconnected, but you've never been taught emotional regulation or you've never really understood the empathy gap because maybe our whole lives have just been focused on us, you know, and our pain and, and the things that we hold on to and our trauma can be hard to have empathy for other people when we're so focused on what's going on in our heads. How do we access that? Like, how do we even, yeah. what yeah. steps, like, how do we even get to the place mm -hmm. where, like, especially in therapy um, with emotional regulation in particular, a lot of times we look to other people to regulate our feelings. You hurt yeah. me. I'm mad at you. You fix the way that you made me feel. And, and so that's like one aspect of emotional regulation, but yeah, I'm just curious. I'd love to go like even deeper on this topic because I think there's so much here, especially for, for us that, you know, are curious and are trying to, yeah. to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put it, let's make it practical, which I love. Um, I think the first step is give ourselves credit, right? That it's, um, to quote Dr. Ross Green, who's a child psychologist, he says, kids do well when they can, mm. which I think goes contrary to sometimes how we view anyone, but young people is like, kids do well when they want to is a narrative that we put on kids, like almost like they misbehave because they want to manipulate us or get back at us or, or hurt us in some way. And all the research around child psychology would say, actually, kids, all they want to do is impress adults in their life. Like, that mm -hmm. is our, our hardwired orientation. Right. He says the only reason why someone would misbehave or behave in a way that is, is hurtful is two categories, lagging skills and unsolved problems. Lagging skills, again, being I don't have the right, um, I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right tools in the toolbox to handle this interaction effectively. Unsolved problems being there are things going on in my life that are big and challenging and hard that I don't have control over, right? Stuff mm -hmm. that's happening in the background that's affecting the foreground. And my, the change that I would offer in Dr. Green's quote would be, people do well when they can because mm -hmm. we don't hit age 18 and be like, oh, okay, here's your certificate. Here's all the uh, skills that you were missing in a little, you know, quick how-to manual. Oh, yeah. And all those unsolved problems, we, you know, we've gone ahead and, and washed those from your memory. <laughs> like, that's mm -hmm. not how it works. <laughs> so as we get into adulthood, if, if we weren't equipped with these things, if we grew up in a household where this was um, not role modeled to us, then I think step one is just give ourselves credit. Wherever we're at, that's where we're at. It's all right. Mm -hmm. Unsolved problems is something that we can take care of through community, through storytelling, through therapy or counseling. Mm -hmm. meditation um lagging skills we can take care of uh by investing in, in some sort of some level of personal development that that offers right like we're, we'll take a program on building effective sales funnels but we won't invest the same time or energy a lot of people right. into the things that affect our day-to-day -day lives and relationships 
to offer a couple of practical strategies. I think one of my favorites is um, separate the behavior from the emotion. So if someone is, if someone's making me um, angry because they're yelling at me, as an example, instead of saying this person's a jerk, they're yelling. Maybe the exercises, even just for a second, can identify the, the feeling they're feeling behind the action. Mm-hmm. I know what it feels like to feel like I'm not heard. I know what it feels like to feel like I was made wrong. Someone cuts you off in traffic. Ah, what a, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> the yeah. feeling beneath it is I know what it feels like to be in a hurt. I know what it feels like to have left mm-hmm. overwhelmed and in a rush. I know what it feels like to get held up at the door by something that was beyond my control. And that simple exercise is a really beautiful practice in empathy yes. because we have a hard time identifying with behaviors that we find ugly even though we're totally capable of them ourselves, mm-hmm. I think we have an easier time recognizing the emotions behind those behaviors. Right. Another simple practice is offered, you know, Dr. Brene Brown says, speak to yourself like you would speak to a friend. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's literally asking for a friend to speak into your life from an objective point of view, mm-hmm. saying, hey, Alexis, this is a story I'm telling myself right now. Do you think this is true about me? Like, how would you explain this feeling to me mm-hmm. as my friend? Right? Because we are such a, when we get wrapped up in our own internal thoughts, it is a wildly unfair system that we're putting against ourselves. We become the jury, the judge, the executioner, the, you know, we become right. everything, which is a very non-biased system. And if we right. care about a fair trial in the external world, we should give mm-hmm. ourselves a shot at a fair trial in the internal world. And that means having... Right a non-biased jury, right? Asking a friend to say, hey, how would you say this to me? Um, mm-hmm. And then the simple exercise of expanding our emotional vocabulary. Right? There's so many, so often we just rely on sort of categorical names for feelings like oh, I'm, I'm mad or sad or glad or afraid. Those are the four basic human emotions, afraid. Uh, but inside of those, like afraid sometimes is actually embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know, sad is actually sometimes lonely. Mm-hmm. Happy is actually enthusiastic or playful. Mm-hmm. And the more distinct we can get at naming those feelings, right? Yeah. The, uh, research would suggest the more accurately we can name a feeling, the more it gives us actually access to uh, our, it helps us regulate it more effectively because it slows down our brain and our body to catch up to the emotion to say, oh, I'm feeling this really big frustration. I'm feeling lonely. And just by naming it, I get more control over it. Mm-hmm. So those are some practical ways. If you're thinking about that right. category of emotional regulation, you could serve yourself. So good. Thank you for going really deep into that. So we just covered incompetence. And you said next was insecure. Insecurity, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's dive into that. <laughs> yeah. The, I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> Take notes. I, I, this is a good one. You're going to dig this one, I think. Yeah, I, um, the frame I'd offer is most of the things that you and I are insecure of, um, we're not born with. Right. And I think it's a good and, and healthy reminder that so many of the things that we're afraid of in our life have been offered to us by culture without our permission. Increasingly so, we get exposed to so much data an obscene amount of data Mm -hmm. over uh, tens of gigabytes of information comes at us per day. 
we read or expose to over a hundred thousand words, exposed to you know hours of advertisements or some form of entertainment or media on any given day. And our brains haven't evolved quick enough to filter that information effectively. Mm. We may think we're ignoring stuff, but messages come through unconsciously around, oh, I'm supposed to look like this, or I'm supposed to be like this, or if I don't have this and I need to buy this, it's sort of how the whole capitalistic framework operates. You know, capitalism thrives in scarcity. If there isn't enough, you want to do blank in order to feel or get enough. And so we have all this inbound data and very rarely do we pause to ask ourselves, is this true? You know, is this thing that is coming at me true? Is it worthwhile? Is it good for me? Is it healthy? Do I want this? <laughs> yeah. And so slowly over time, we just have these little narratives that begin to take shape in our brain. Some of them happen passively. Some of us who have experienced trauma, it's a much more definitive moment, right? There's a person or a situation in our life that has made us feel mm-hmm. not good enough or not worthy. And I think it's a, it's a good frame, at least for me, to recognize that those situations aren't capital T true, but we can sometimes make them true in our life by repeating a lie long enough that we start to believe it ourselves. Yes. I think so often we think about like fear in our life. Um, I don't know. And maybe this is like a little bit of the cynic, cynical side of me thinks like we, we, we frame so many of our issues in life as things that we have to get out of the way in order to perform better. Mm-hmm. And we orient a lot around productivity and achievement. So when we talk about fear of failure, it's almost always couched in the narrative of like, you know, Apple was a garage company before it became the most successful, you know, Michael mm-hmm. Jordan had to miss all these shots in order to make these. Yeah. And I think that like fear of failure, which gets built into us has an equal impact on our, our sense of connection to ourselves and other people. Oh yeah. Now sometimes I'm terrified of saying the wrong thing, even to someone that I love so much so that I won't even do it. You Mm -hmm. know, like I I will stop myself from saying something meaningful in a moment of um, consequence because I'm scared that I won't quote unquote do it right. Mm. I had this, a story I talk about in the book is, is my, my best friend from college, Lucas lost his mom last year to cancer. My mom is a stage four colon cancer survivor. And I had this weird guilt around my mom surviving and his not. I had this whole narrative in my head that he would reach out when he needed to, but I was so terrified of not saying the right thing to my best friend. Mm. Partially because like literally my job is talking about kindness. I was like, I need to do the perfect thing. And Mm. because I didn't know what the perfect thing was, I didn't reach out to him for like five months. And finally, I saw him in person and I had to pull him aside and I was like, hey, man, listen, I, I've blown it. Mm-hmm. And Lucas, in a profound moment of forgiveness, said, I understand. You know, it hurt. It hurt that you didn't call. It hurt that you weren't at the funeral. But I understand. And I was like, I will be better going forward. But I let you down for five months simply because I was scared of failing you. I think that's the sort of kindness that we don't always... Um, associate when we think about what kindness is. I think so much of our culture talks about kindness as this light, fluffy thing. Right. And and those moments are, are good and worthwhile and important, and they typically are the ones that make the news. They have a place. But those moments of personal interaction, 
the moments that are most needed, I think, presently in our world of, of connection, of caring, of compassion, of showing up, even when it's wildly uncomfortable, are, are the sorts of kindness I think we presently need most. And, mm-hmm. and I think kindness requires a ton of courage. Uh, the recognition of the lies that we tell ourselves and how those insecurities prevent us from connection, right? Our fear of rejection, our fear of embarrassment, our fear of being laughed at, our fear of failing people, our fear of, uh, of you know, our own personal sense of shame. Mm-hmm. All those things are disconnectors uh, in our life. And if we aren't conscious of them, we will never move past them to give. Yeah. And even when you're conscious of them, like you knew, and thank you for sharing that story about your friend. Um, it's hard to recognize when we've let the people that we love down based out of our own insecurities, right? And it's like you were perhaps even aware of it, but then actually speaking life over it and like actually verbalizing it to your friend is a whole other layer of kindness mm. and vulnerability too, of just like, saying, Mm. I'm sorry, I failed you. I messed up. There's a whole, like, it's, it's one thing to be aware and it's another thing to actually acknowledge and then to take action Mm. from it. And it's that kindness lived out. It's not this idea. It's this action oriented like self, you know, it's like you can walk around being the most aware person in the world. Congratulations. Like Mm. truly, like you've been fully enlightened. Yeah. And then what do you do with it? Like, what's the responsibility that's behind awareness, you know? And like hearing how you were aware and then you took action behind it. I think that is like those steps towards connectivity, right? It's like, you're taking those steps back towards, I want to connect with you. I want to be in deep relationship with you. But before I can access that connection, I first have to acknowledge that there has been disconnection. And that is very hard. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite quotes from James Hunter is intentions minus actions equals squat. <laughs> yeah. You Okay, so we talked about um in- incompetence, insecurity, and there's one more. Inconvenience. Inconvenience. Okay, so this one was whenever you said it, this was the one where I was like, "E." You know how sometimes you hear things and you're like, <laughs> conviction like you you feel like oh okay this was meant for me so yeah. let's go preach to me man <laughs> <laughs> uh well speaking of of preaching one of the most frustrating sort of studies done on compassion um was at the princeton theological seminary school and they took a group of students into building a and they told half of them they were going to give a practice sermon on the parable of the good samaritan story of stopping and helping strangers in need. Yeah. I told the other half of the students that they were going to give a talk about job opportunities in the seminary field. Two pretty distinct sort of topics. One is a sort of impassioned sermon on helping people preaching. And the other one is uh, just, you know, uh, just talk about jobs. In between building A, where they were preparing, and building B, where they were supposed to deliver, the researchers intentionally planted someone in the middle doubled over in pain, obviously in need. They wanted to know, would the people actively thinking about compassion be more likely to stop and help? No. The biggest determining factor as to whether or not someone stopped was how much of a rush they felt like they were in. How much time they felt like they had to get from building A to building B. 
Whoa. And I think to myself, how often do I feel like I'm in a rush between building A and building B? Oh. Probably one of the biggest disconnectors of kindness in our culture presently is that we're all busy. And while we would say that we want to be kind, I would ask, where does kindness fall on your to-do list? Is it at the top each day? Or is it something you do when you have the time? Because guess what? I never have the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll never have the time. right? Unless I protect the time, unless I make the time consciously, I'm never going to have the time. right? And so my practical strategy would be write a one or two item to be list at the top of your to-do list. Who do I want to be today? And if the answer is kind, it could be one of your answers. It could be present. It could be grateful. It could be forgiving. Then give myself a f- whatever, how much time I want to allocate to it, but give myself a five minute practice that I could do today that I could check off, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Will Durant says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit goes back to the whole like skill versus value thing. Oh, I'm a kind person oh, mm-hmm. because you volunteer three times a year. Right. You know, and not to dismiss those things. Sometimes I come across as callous because I'm passionate about this, but I think it's a, an easy mistake we can give in our, our own brain of like, because I've done a few things, but I come back to my mom and the lunch notes and I think to myself, what is the thing I protect time for every day? Mm-hmm. That inconsistency allows me to become a thing through disciplined practice, allows me to become a thing. Mm-hmm. My friend Dexter Davis says, we're not human beings, we're human becomings. And I love that premise that in order to become a thing, I have to give it time and energy each and every day. It costs me something. Mm-hmm. And so the to-be list exercise, we even use that organizationally. We have, you know, we have our daily goals, our work goals, and we have items that are on our to-be list. We have character goals alongside our, our work goals. Mm-hmm. Um, that we're, we check in on. We have accountability partners. We have a system to check in on them each week, right? We make them just as much a part of our metrics of success uh, as what we're supposed to get done in our email or on our Asana board. Yeah. Ooh, Asana. That's a good tool. You know it. <laughs> I do. I love that because, and I, I talk about this a lot with my clients and just in general, is these things are practices. They're daily practices. You can't check off healing off of a to-do list. You know, you don't just like check off vulnerability. I did it that one time, remember? Or I was kind that one time. It's a daily practice that we return to that's a part of our character development. It's a part of who we're becoming. And um, I read a book in early 2019 called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I love him. Yeah. Um, Have seen him speak a couple times and he definitely like brings the heat. And In his book, Atomic Habits, he asked this question, are you becoming who you want to become? And that was like the first time I'd ever, you know, it's like, who do you want to be? But it's like, are you becoming who you want to become right now? Are you actively becoming that person? And it was the first time I had to kind of think about, you know, what are, what's on my to be list every single day? You know, not just things I'm checking off a list and being productive, but are my goals as focused on they are as my on my character and who I'm becoming as they are on like you know my career goals are they am I holding them at equal importance and another aside from being busy like what else do you think i mean maybe it's alongside being busy right now we live in a very 
polarizing, divisive situation in the in the United States in general. Like I feel like it can be very divisive regardless of which side that you're on, right? Where is their kindness and respect whenever you're like with someone or in a conversation with someone where you disagree, um, whether it be about politics or about anything, right? About the direction your company should head. Like how do you also find kindness kindness in the midst of conflict. It's the implication there that we're experiencing conflict right now as a country. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think so much of kindness in our world has been um, unintentionally devalued as something that it doesn't cost us something and that it is light or free or simple or fluffy or that something that is just like a pushover, a trait mm-hmm. of a pushover, that it's mm-hmm. soft. And uh, I wildly disagree with that notion. I think that the sort of kindness the world needs is uh, wildly passionate. Uh, it's incredibly boundaried, meaning, uh, and you know, to come back to Brene Brown, she says the most kind people are the most boundaried. They're really clear on what's okay and what's not okay. And uh, in the clarity of their nose, they're able to amplify what they say yes to mm-hmm. and do those things with real joy as opposed to saying yes to everyone and having it be this wish-washy sort of blanket kindness that doesn't serve anyone, literally anyone effectively, right? You're resentful. They're getting kind of half of you or a partial version of you. Uh, So when we're in conflict, drawing a boundary is a kind thing to do. When we're in conflict uh, saying this is not okay, you're not allowed to treat me this way Mm -hmm. is a kind thing to do. When we're in conflict, also trying to hear and have someone feel heard is a kind thing to do, right? Allowing someone's side to be feel expressed and to be understand, right? To to not always just say that this thing is definitively holistically wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, there's lines there. There's right. the, the whole principle of we can't tolerate intolerance. It's the one thing we can't tolerate. Right. So if someone is actively categorically hurting a group of people we can stand up against that. Right. Uh, But when we just disagree, which is what most of the conflict we're experiencing right now is about, when we disagree, we can hear a distinct side and still say, I love you and I disagree, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And that is okay. And we can still tell our story. We can still ask to be heard and share our side. But kindness isn't wishy-washy and kindness isn't agreeing to everyone all the time. I think there's also the danger of, uh, of in our, our current reality, we're being asked to care about so much and the the escape route that I think our brain wants us to take is when we when we when we're asked to care about everything, it's easy to just end up caring about nothing. Mm-hmm. you know and in the overwhelm, uh, we default to apathy, not because we're careless people, but we're overwhelmed by caring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my encouragement would be in those moments to just to, to allow ourselves to care deeply about one thing, even if it's only for a short chapter, but give ourselves permission to, to care clearly and mm-hmm. consistently about one thing is going to reduce the burnout and trying to keep up with everything. Uh, and, uh, to go to your point about habits, you know, uh, Charles Dewey wrote The Power of Habits, similar in concept to Atomic Habits. But he says that 45% of our day is routine. Mm-hmm. 
And that stat, you know, scares me and also gives me some permission to give me a framework to rethink, okay, if 45% of my day is routine, what percent of my 45% is designed to be kind? And can I give myself permission just to say, it's okay if it's 1%. You know, my vision in in many ways of of the book is, what if the whole world decided to be 1% more kind? It doesn't need to be a radical thing, but if we all built in a 1% shift into our day-to-day practices, and we put our intentional focus on a 1% improvement in our one lane, that over time is going to make the most immeasurable difference. Yeah. And so I think it's just holding those things in balance, right? That mm-hmm. it, conflict is good. Conflict creates friction and allows us an opportunity for empathy. It, all, it allows us an opportunity for collaboration if we know how to engage in that conversation thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes allows us an opportunity for just clarity of saying we agree to disagree. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and in the context of the of what's happening in the world, we can also say, you know, there's a lot to care about. But instead of just giving up holistically, <laughs> throwing the baby out with the bathwater, perhaps it's like, I'm just going to get really thoughtful about this one thing for this right. season. You know, it's a political time right now. Maybe my lane is just this one thing that I'm going to care about and show up in and get mm-hmm. really clear expertise on. Listen to other people in other categories, but say, this is my thing that I'm going to care about so deeply and, and going to teach people. I'm going to teach myself and I'm going to teach people about. That's really powerful. And I'm, I wish I would have given myself that gift earlier in the year, even because I think that what you said about the apathy, you know, I also kind of for that, for me, that kind of manifested as like empathy fatigue of just like, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of so many people. What are my shoes? Where do I stand? Like I was just, like just really taking in as much as possible from so many different viewpoints and in a state of learning. And sometimes when we open that door of learning, we also need to have boundaries around that of how long are we going to let allow ourselves to live in that place of exploration without taking care of our mental health and, and just taking some, some time to rest in that and to process what we're learning and to process how we feel about it and how it might change our behavior might enforce our behavior um, or both. And so, yeah, it's just been interesting to navigate this time. I'm really thankful for your advice. I'm, I can already see areas of my life where I have started to apply it and would like to turn, like turn up the dial a little bit on that. So I, mm-hmm. I know this is going to be applicable to people that are listening too that want to be kind. And then like, I feel like our attentions going into the day are, you know, we have our to be list, we have our to do list. And then someone says something and you just want to pop off, you know, where you're just <laughs> like, what? Like, <laughs> do you ever have that? Like, how do you, and I, I think that definitely goes back to like the emotional regulation, right? We're circling back to the beginning of this convo, but it's, it's not losing sight of the goal, right? Like it's not losing sight of like, this is our character. This is who we are. And we can't always allow other people or situations to take us away from that character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, uh, it is um, reliant on on our own personal clarity, right? If, if we haven't pre-declared that this is the sort of person I want to be, in research, they call it implementation intentions. And the sort of short practical version is like an if-then statement. 
if then, or I like to think about it as like a win then as opposed to if, because for a lot of these circumstances, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. Mm -hmm. And there's actually like a, a well-researched power behind saying, I'm the kind of person who blank. And a lot of people like to think about those things internally and never write them down or express them anywhere, mm. which gives no accountability. So you can say, I'm a kind of person all you want. But unless you get specific and and how you're going to show up in that moment, then it's easy to um, default to our emotional state as opposed to a pre-declared standard that I hold for myself. Yes. So going through a little inventory of like when, for example, when I see a person who's experiencing homelessness, then I'm the kind of person who will, um, if I don't have anything on me, at least look them in the eyes and offer a smile. Mm-hmm. If I do have a dollar bill on me, I'm the kind of person that will hand it to them. It's an example. Uh, when someone comes at me with something that I disagree with or frustrates me, then I'm the kind of person who makes that person feel heard and not hurt in return. Whatever that looks like, right? And there's mm-hmm. the challenging part about those sorts of statements is that there's infinite sort of different ways we could walk with that. But even giving yourself permission to pre-declare three or five of those, it increases the likelihood that you show up in that behavior a ton. And it comes back to habits. What you're doing is creating a mini habit pattern in your brain. It's a little micro habit that like that's the, the nature of habits, right? Cue, routine, reward. The mm-hmm. cue is, oh, I've pre-declared when this thing happens. Routine is then I'm going to go into this thing. And the reward is, well, I'm in alignment with the kind of person I said I was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the the way that all habits happen in our life. And we actually have some level of control over, um, you know, looking into the future and saying, I know I'm going to be in X, Y, or Z circumstance at some point. Who do I want to be in that situation? And without clarity, typically without clarity, we allow ourselves to default to an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. That is a very beautiful exercise. I think, I've been really focused on values is like, what is my value system? And then underneath my values is like these sub values of, of different actions and different behaviors that are in alignment with those values. And I think hearing the, um, I'm the kind of person who like those declarative statements almost takes those value systems a step further and Mm -hmm. really starts to think about what are these value systems lived out and what is our behavior around them when someone infringes upon our values or when we feel like we need to explain our values or defend our values or live them out very clearly and very concisely. Um, That's amazing. This has been so amazing, Houston. Thank you so much. Like I... I love learning from people and I'm like legit taking notes over here for people that are listening because there's always so much to learn, right? And everyone has something to give. And I just love what you are giving the world and with Character Strong. And I'm going to talk about that more in the intro and how people can get connected with you on that side of things. But where can people learn more about you, your book, Deep Kindness, connect to you on Instagram, like Give me all the access points to Houston Craft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can stalk me however you choose. Uh, Instagram's a good choice. It's just Houston like the city and Craft with a K. Uh, The powerful cough. (laughs) If you need a reminder and you speak German. 
Um, Houston Craft is a good one on Instagram. And then uh, to find out about Character Strong, that's just characterstrong.com. If you're interested in education or work in education. And then Deep Kindness is the book, the book that uh, came out in September of 2020. And uh, it is a distillation of, of all that I've learned about um, how to live a more compassionate life through a decade of talking and thinking about it. Um, and that's available pretty much anywhere that they sell books or deepkindness.com is the best place to look. Okay, great. I will make sure to link all of those up in the show notes so that you can easily access all of the access points of Houston. And I'm just so thankful for you and your heart for kindness and the important and hard challenging work that it takes to be an advocate for kindness and the work you're doing in the education space, as well as just in the world. Like it takes a lot of intention and a lot of action and a lot of kindness, um, but it's also hard work. And so I just want to acknowledge all the effort and the beautiful rewards in which you've given the world. So I'm just so thankful for you and for this conversation. Thank you. 